You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Concerns persist that President Putin will take his revenge in cyberspace for sanctions. Wiper attacks are reported continuing in Ukraine. Russia also sustains cyber attacks. Lapsus living at home with mom. A Carter kingpin finds his way into the FBI's most wanted list. Andrea Little Limbago from Enteros on collective resilience. Our guest is Amit Shaked from Laminar Security on shadow data. And Anonymous says it hit Nestle, but Nestle says uh, never happened. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, March 24th, 2022. Large scale Russian cyber attacks against Western targets haven't so far materialized, but governments aren't prepared to drop their guard. It strikes many policymakers, Newsweek reports, that Russian President Putin may turn to cyber attacks as retaliation for Western sanctions. U.S. Representative Jason Crow, a Democrat from Colorado's 6th District, a member of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Cyber, Innovative Technologies, and Information Systems, told Newsweek that, quote, Putin will use the tools at his disposal to respond, and the biggest one that he has is cyber, So I think we can fully expect that there'll be cyber attacks on the United States and our allies in weeks and months ahead. I think we can expect Putin to come at our financial system and some of our critical infrastructure. End quote. So far, the cyber attack that disrupted Viasat's service is the one cyber incident that's had significant effects beyond the borders of Ukraine, Wired reports. That attack remains under investigation and hasn't been definitively attributed to Russia. France 24 points out another possibility. Russia might consider severing undersea cables that carry much of the world's internet traffic. This is more a report of a priori possibility based on known capabilities than a conclusion based on specific indicators and warning. Cable cutting has a long wartime history going back to the First World War. Russia has not departed from the line it took even before its invasion began. The Russian embassy to the U.S. tweeted a representative statement back on February 18th, quote, We categorically reject these baseless statements of the administration 
and note that Russia has nothing to do with the mentioned events and, in principle, has never conducted and does not conduct any malicious operations in cyberspace. End quote. Eric Cheen, security threat researcher at Symantec Threat Intelligence, emailed us to say that his team is seeing signs that wiper attacks, specifically using variants of hermetic wiper, are continuing against Ukrainian networks. As he put it, quote, Very anecdotal, and while it hasn't really been in the news because it overall may not be material given the kinetic actions, the actual wiper attacks in Ukraine have not stopped. We just saw a variant of hermetic wiper deployed again yesterday on an organization we saw previously affected. And also, on March 14th, we saw a variant of hermetic wiper deployed on an organization that we also saw affected on the first day of the war. Communication with organizations in Ukraine is difficult, but our understanding is that for most of these organizations, they are far more impacted by the kinetic effects in their country. Quote. Anonymous continues its nuisance-level hacktivism against Russian targets, most recently by hijacking printers to publish anti-war messages to Russian audiences. About 160 printers were compromised to send more than 40,000 messages into Russia, according to HackRead. The IT Army of Ukraine, which is more militia than hacktivist collective, has been operating with more official direction. CNBC puts the total number of members of the IT Army as somewhat more than 311,000. One IT Army member said of the Russian enemy, quote, We want them to go to the Stone Age, and we're pretty good at this. End quote. Bloomberg reports that the leading intellects behind the Lapsus gang may be a couple of teenagers, one in the UK, the other in Brazil. Researchers at two prominent Lapsus targets, Microsoft and NVIDIA, say they've traced one of the teens to Oxfordshire, England. In view of the British teens' tender years, Bloomberg isn't revealing their name, but they do report that they go by the hacker name White and Breachbase. The police have yet to accuse Breachbase of any crime. Apparently, rival hackers put Bloomberg onto them. Quote, the teenage hacker in England has had their personal information, including their address and information about their parents, posted online by rival hackers. End quote. The reporters haven't spoken to Breachbase, but they were able to talk to their mum through the doorbell intercom. She said she knew nothing of the allegations, was upset that her child had been the subject of harassment, and that she was calling the police. Police in the Thames Valley and in San Francisco, who are investigating Lapsus, declined to comment. Lapsus, which was apparently motivated in part by a thirst for notoriety, may now have more of it than they're finding comfortable. Bloomberg quotes one of the gang's accounts, a few of our members has a vacation until the 30th of March, 2022. We might be quiet for some times, the hacker wrote in their Telegram channel. Thanks for understand us. We will try to leak stuff ASAP. Stay tuned. The U.S. FBI has added accused Russian Carter kingpin Igor Djekcharchuk to its most wanted list. He's charged with wire fraud, aiding and abetting, access device fraud, trafficking in unauthorized access devices, and other crimes. And finally, to return to Russia's war against Ukraine and the sometimes wayward aim of the hacktivists engaged therein, Anonymous claims to have compromised Nestle's corporate network. The hacktivist collective says it extracted 10 gigabytes of sensitive data, which it subsequently dumped on the Internet 
in protest against the company's failure to have completely suspended operations in Russia. But this seems to be mistaken exaggeration at best. Data were indeed exposed, but Nestle says, according to the register, that their networks weren't in fact compromised. The data, the company says, originated with, quote, a case from February this year when some randomized and predominantly publicly available test data of a B2B nature was unintentionally made accessible online for a short period of time on a single business test website, end quote. Nestle investigated and found the exposure to be trivial. In a separate move, lest any hacktivist decide to take a real whack at them, Nestle expressed its solidarity with Ukraine and said it was limiting sales in Russia to baby food and hospital nutrition products. Specifically, Mr. Lavrov will henceforth lack access to KitKats and Nesquik. Nestle's distinction among its products is difficult to fault on humanitarian grounds, and their statement is worth quoting in full, quote, As the war rages in Ukraine, our activities in Russia will focus on providing essential food, such as infant food and medical and hospital nutrition, not on making a profit. This approach is in line with our purpose and values. It upholds the principle of ensuring the basic rights to food. Going forward, we are suspending renowned Nestle brands, such as KitKat and Nesquik, among others. We have already halted non-essential imports and exports into and out of Russia, stopped all advertising, and suspended all capital investment in the country. Of course, we are fully complying with all international sanctions on Russia. While we do not expect to make a profit in the country or pay any related taxes for the foreseeable future in Russia, any profit will be donated to humanitarian relief organizations. This is in addition to the hundreds of tons of food supplies and significant financial assistance that we have already contributed to support the people in Ukraine and refugees in neighboring countries. And these efforts will continue. We stand with the people of Ukraine and our 5,800 employees there. Quote. Nicely said, Nestle. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. 
This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Trying to imagine the amount of data storage in the cloud is kind of like trying to fathom the distance between galaxies in space. At some point, the numbers get so big, it's just not possible for our brains to comprehend in any meaningful way. For cloud storage, the abundance of available storage can lead to organizations losing sight of what they have and where they have it. Amit Shaked is CEO and co-founder at cloud data security firm Laminar, and I caught up with him for a lesson on shadow data. Shadow data refers to all the data stores, databases, data lakes, and warehouses that are largely unknown to the organization. And this can be a running data store or a backup or a copy or a log file or even just a data in a table format that's hiding uh, in your uh, environment. And shadow data is more likely to be misconfigured and unmonitored and also violate your data security and then privacy policies. And what we find is that very often shadow data is not even used. Like it can sit there for months or even years in the environment without anybody using it and without creating any revenue for the organization. But this whole time, it's a wonderful target for, for the attackers. So what are the ways in which shadow data is typically created here? Is this, is this a matter of folks just sort of going about their day-to-day business and uh, forgetting that they've copied something and, and stuck it in a folder for their convenience, things like that? Yes, exactly. It's part of the day-to-day work and it's part of the what the, comes with the cloud transformation. And, and actually, it's the combination of the cloud transformation that just drives uh, developers or make it easy for developers and data scientists to leverage data more easily to create, store, and the data democratization that kind of encourages them to to do it more, more freely. Uh, so the combinations of these two just creates more and more data stores and combined with the lack of gatekeepers, that it means that security teams are not always aware of all these data stores that are being created and used. And this lack of gatekeepers is just because modern security organizations don't want to stop developers from leveraging data, right? They want to enable them to do it more and more. But what it means is that they're no longer always part of the process of creating and leveraging this data. So they lost the opportunity to ask very important questions about the data, like what is this data used for? How is it protected? Who do you share it with? And so having more and more data stores without security and data teams awareness creates all these shit of data. And that's kind of the, let's say, motivators and drivers for that. And I'm happy to also share some examples for shit of data that we find with our clients. Well, help me understand then, how do we go about, uh, you know, preventing this? It seems to me like, um, you know, data storage is cheap enough to practically be free. And I can understand users having a bit of a pack rat mentality of saying, I'm just going to set this aside until I need it. And why delete it if it's not really causing me any trouble? I may, who knows when I may need this again? (laughs) Yes, uh, exactly. So you're almost right. It, it is exactly the, the mentality of developers. And I'll also say that it's, you know, it's always very scary to delete a database. Maybe someone else is using it. And so it's mm. way easier to create one than delete it. 
But it's not that data is free. Actually, data is one of the main cost drivers in the cloud. It's just not that like the people that are creating it are not the being the people that are paying for it. So yes, I mean, this is a, a huge cost in the cloud. And so what do you propose here? How can organizations get on top of this? As you said, like the, the abundance of data stores means that in modern enterprises, there can be thousands or even tens of thousands of data stores. With that, millions of different files that can be stored within them. So manually go one by one and try to find shadow data is not really effective. So automation here is the key, right? You need continuous and automated, first of all, discovery of data stores and of shadow data, of security, like how this shadow data is configured, and also in terms of access monitoring. So who is actually accessing this shadow data so you need this continuous monitoring embedded within your environment, embedded within your cloud, embedded into the, the CI CD5. That's Amit Shaked from Laminar. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little Limbago. She is the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it's always great to have you back. I want to touch base with you today on something I know you've had your eye on, and that is this notion of collective resilience. Can we dig into that? What exactly are we talking about there? Yeah, and thanks, Dave, for having me back. Um, you know, I think we, we spend a lot of time, you know, appropriately uh, highlighting some of the, the challenges and the attacks and the you know, offensive measures that are going on and the innovations that are going on. Um, and absolutely need to cover that. But I think what there's been much less focus on some of the innovation that's going on on the defensive side. And I think there's been a lot going on in that area over the last couple of years, really moving away from, you know, we've heard you know, for way too long, you know, the, the perimeter is dead and so forth. And some of that kind of just stops and it's become kind of marketing and so forth. But we're seeing some really interesting movements as toward, you know, how, what can we do to be working together as defenders to build up all of our own, our own collective security, our own collective resilience against the, you know, the, onslaught of, of cyber attacks that are going on. And you know, it was a couple of years ago, in, uh, around May of 2020, that CISA put out something, it put out a blog really focusing on how to build collective resilience for the ICT supply chain. And you know, in there, they, kind of, they, they walk through really how you know, both, you know, obviously, a critical infrastructure is, is necessary to protect, but that can't be done alone. That really does need to be a public sector, private sector, together, working together um, in really interesting and innovative ways. And that's how we will, as a society, you'll build up this more this notion of collective resilience against the attacks that you know, each of us going off on our own, doing our own thing, really doesn't help out that much. It really does have to be greater coordination. And on one hand, you know, it's easy to you know, make sense when you say it, but you know, in reality, it becomes very, very difficult. 
Is this sort of the, the cyber equivalent of a neighborhood watch? Yes, although even with neighborhood watch, you do worry about some of those. You've heard like the social medias have kind of have gone sort of <laughs> gone crazy. So we want to right, we right. want to avoid we want the benefits of some of the neighborhood watch, but avoid some of the the craziness that I, that, that goes along with it. But it, but it is but it is thinking along the lines of you know what can we be doing together? And so you know, some good examples are you know there was a joint simulation of a cyber attack on a global financial system that the IMF put out. And this is you know on the one hand you'd be like oh that you know, this was just in this December of uh, twenty twenty one. And so you'd think that, oh, I'm sure the IMF has done things like this, you know, for years. But but no, it was the first time they had done sort of this this, this joint, basically wargaming of what of what different. You know, they brought countries. They had about, I think about ten different countries together to do this joint war game on what would happen if there was a cyber attack on the financial system. And you know that you know, that kind of coordination and cooperation, you know, is necessary, right? I mean, those are the, we talk about you know these sort of these negative you know kind of events happening, but don't do. But haven't really focused on you bring the various groups together to help address those. And when you, we see a lot of it going on within companies or within a country, but not necessarily across those areas and across those those boundaries that normally tend to exist. And so um, we're seeing you know, numerous instances of that where we're seeing both at the strategic level, countries starting to come together to see how they can create defenses together or policies that are that align together. And we see it all the way down to the tactical level where we're seeing a lot of you know, just open source contributions, for instance. On how to help build secu- you know, supply chain security, uh, and open, like open source software as well, you know, into your into your secure security system, and um, so that's really you know, interesting to see. There's every there's, you know, at least you know almost like half a dozen different efforts right now of open source software that's been created to help companies and, and you know, individuals at large really spot vulnerabilities, how to t- you know assess this, the integrity of their digital supply chain, and that's in the open source area. And you've got the Linux Foundation, Open Web Application. Folks are are doing work in this area, and so it's really you see it all the way, you know, almost from you know the grassroots and open source community all the way up to you know the highest levels of governments and then international government organizations, thinking of are pursuing interesting and novel ways for collaboration to help strengthen our defenses. You know, one thing I, I've noticed uh, in doing our research Saturday show with the folks that I talk. Uh, within research uh, arms of organizations, where you know you have these organizations that public-facing are competitors, but the researchers behind the scenes have channels to share information with each other, and that's a big part in the success of what they do, That of, of making sure that they're able to bounce things off of each other, you know, share share things for the greater good. And that, that's exactly right. And that's when, you know, you, you think a lot about information sharing, and we think about the information sharing communities, and those are very important. That's the more formalized mechanisms that you need. But to your point, the, the informal avenues are, I'd argue, are just as important because those are the ones that are very timely. You, have, you know who you can call if you have a question, and you can get that answer right away. You don't have to deal with, you know, various kinds of bureaucracies uh, limiting some of that collaboration. And so the formal mechanisms are 100% necessary, but these informal ones really are a great way for, for researchers to to help each other out and to help get that real-time awareness of what may be going on and help spread that word. And so, again, I think it goes back to as well, you know, it, it's you know, one of the benefits of having some of the in-person conferences that we used to have where a lot of those conversations would happen where people could meet other people working in those areas. And, you know, the hybrid has been, in, or the you know, virtual has been great for exposing greater audience. Uh, but I think, you know, the more that we can help promote those informal means as well for the researchers to meet each other, connect with their community in this area, um, I think that's just an essential part of the security community is, is that sharing through those means. Yeah. All right. Well, Andrea little Limbago, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Urban, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.